I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Book of 1 Peter and chapter 5. And we can let the little ones be dismissed. Listen, fourth and fifth graders are staying in today. So I think it's K through 3 that is going out this morning. So you guys can be uh, moving on your way. Thank you, Bobby, because I did forget. 1 Peter chapter 5. During this past week, our teenage young people in the junior high category went to camp. Uh, This week coming, our senior high kids are going to go to camp. I remember going to camp. It wasn't that long ago uh, from my perspective. Um, I remember going to camp being in a place that was protected, where I was nurtured, where my faith was encouraged. I remember regularly coming home from camp, really believing that I was now, in the power of God, going to experience sustained growth in my life. Uh, Most parents welcome their children home from camp with big smiles and wonderful stories of all the things they did, hoping that their time away in some way has affected their relationship with God. And I think for many young people who get put apart in that kind of a situation where there is an intense focus on the Word of God, on truth, on biblical community, that good things begin to happen. Seeds are sown. Seeds take root. But the truth is that most of us come home from those experiences and run directly into the brick wall of opposition. An opposition that is not only uh, kind of out there in the realm of temptation, but it is very personal and it has a personality a personality that many people in the world treat as a joke Uh, my topic this morning is going to be the topic of our adversary the devil the importance of understanding the battle that we are all engaged with as we seek to live a life that glorifies God and that exalts the name of Christ and that demonstrates the power of the Spirit of God I want our kids our young people our teenagers to come home from camp and to experience a sustained walk with God. But I know and they need to know and all of us in our spiritual life need to know that as you seek to engage in victorious and glorious Christian living, when you step out like that, you will find that you have an individual who is seeking to oppose you. This passage of Scripture takes direct aim in verse 8 at that individual. In verse 8, he is called your enemy, The devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to destroy or to cast down. And I think what Peter is indicating is this. The nature of Christian living is that it is a battle zone. It's a war zone and you need to live on wartime footing in order to be successful in your experience and walk with God. You have an opponent who is capable, diligent, intentional, and tireless. Unfortunately for many of us, he is nothing short of a comic figure. He is the butt of jokes. He's the guy with the red tail and the the pitchfork in his hand who stokes the fires of eternity. For many of us, he is not a reality that we take into consideration on a daily basis. He was for Peter. He was for the early church. And I believe this with all my heart. He is a reality on a daily basis for every serious Christian. 
If you are trying to live the transformed life, you know in your daily experience what it is to face opposition from three areas. From the world, from your flesh, and from the devil. Okay? If you are seeking to live a committed life, be ready for opposition. The call to follow Christ is not for weaklings spiritually. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for spiritual sissies. It is for people who are serious about going out into this world and making a difference for the cause of Christ, realizing that as they go out and try to make that difference, they will experience formidable opposition. We are warned about that opposition continually and habitually throughout the pages of Scripture. I think the unfortunate thing in the church is that for most of us, Satan has become virtually irrelevant, trivial, trivial or comical in our thinking. The result is this. He simply is not taken seriously. Many of us do not prepare for the battle that is the Christian life. And over the next few weeks, I want to take some time to focus on our adversary with this desire to make you aware of his, his effects, to prepare you for how to stand against his influence in your life. And third, and this is the more difficult discussion I want to have with you, is to help you to understand why God allows him to exist. Because that is a question for every Christian that should bang around in your mind. Why did God not utterly and completely destroy him? We know he plans to. Romans 16 verse 20. Soon the God of all peace will crush Satan under your Revelation chapter 12. He is the accuser of the brethren who is going to be cast down. We know that. We long for that promise. And we have this question. Why does God allow him to function? To what end? To what aim? And to what purpose? And I'll deal with that in two weeks. This morning the focus of our attention is on understanding the opponent that we all deal with. Asking the question, is a successful sustained, God-honoring life possible? All right. Given the nature of the opposition that we experience, can I be assured that it is possible for me as a Christian to experience sustained, perpetual, habitual growth in my Christian experience? Because most of us live with this. We live with a very complacent attitude that accepts the defeated Christian experience as the normal Christian experience. I think Peter's aim in this text is to allow you to understand your opponent. Not so that you can say, oh, then what I'm experiencing is at some level normal, which I believe is true. The opposition and the oppression of the evil one is normal Christian living. But caving into that pressure and living a demonized life, if you will, A struggling, hurting life all the time under the power and sway of the evil one is not what he anticipated and expected. But I believe it is what many of us settle for. Okay, here's my desire. I want to help you to do what Peter says in this text. You know, he boils it down to one word. He says, stand. Stand. What we need to do as the Church of Christ is together to have a renewed commitment to stand arm in arm together against the opposition that we face. I'm not going to call you this morning to isolated Christian living that is all about your personal walk. No, it's a walk that we are to engage in together. And God wants us to stand together. And through Peter, he looks at us as someone who, was, who, who, who succumbed to the pressure of the evil one. He looks at you and says, you can do this. 
And he looks to us sympathetically too, saying, I know what it is to fail, which we looked at last week. But you can do this. It is possible to live a sustained, effective, powerful Christian life for the glory of God. Satan does not want you to believe that. Now, what does Peter do to help us to come to the realization that this successful, God-glorifying, sustained Christian experience can be maintained? And what he does is he does two things. He helps us to understand our opponent, the devil. Okay, and then secondly, he tells us how to respond to him. When he speaks into your life, when he tempts, when he seduces, when he tricks and deceives. He tells us how to respond. So let's first of all look at the brief resume of the evil one that is given here. Now I'm going to say this. There are many other things about his opposition that we could say. Okay, I'm going to limit my attention this morning to verse 8 and to the resume that Peter gives us to help us to understand a picture of our adversary, of our opponent. Okay, I'm going to make four observations from verse 8 about our adversary, the devil. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Four simple truths. Number one, and I think this is, for Peter, this is an assumption. Okay? He is not in this text arguing for the reality of Satan. He is asserting the reality or assuming the reality of Satan. My goal this morning... Okay, if you're visiting with us, if you say, that, you know what, Pastor Jim, I'm skeptical about such a discussion. I do see him as somewhat of a myth that Christianity has created. Okay, I'm not going to take time this morning to argue for why I believe he exists from the Word of God. I'm just going to state what it says this morning. If you have questions about his existence, I'd be more than happy to engage with you in a discussion about that. From the text, here's, I think, what we can assume. Number one, he is real. Peter doesn't argue for his existence. He just points out and assumes the things that he knows about him. Secondly, he is our opponent. The word that is used at the beginning of verse 8, your enemy can easily and I think uh, correctly be translated, your adversary, the devil. An adversary is someone who takes you to court. They are your opponent in a lawsuit. They are not a friend. They're not a playmate. They're not someone to trivialize with and mess with. Okay? There's someone that you are to take a stand against okay and in this context peter clearly identifies satan as your enemy the one who seeks to wear down your faith to destroy your renewed faith and ultimately his goal is this to render your walk with god ineffective okay he doesn't care that you know god but he cares that you live a powerful life for god so he is real secondly in the description he is your opponent Thirdly, he is this. He is the slanderer or the accuser of the brothers. So here's the word that uh, Peter uses to describe him. Your enemy, the devil. Okay, and that word devil means one who is a slanderer, a distorter. Romans 12, Revelation 12.10 says he stands before God and accuses us day and night. Not only does he do that before God, where else does he do that? He does that so effectively in our psyche, doesn't he? Burdening us with feelings of condemnation, with guilt, with confusion. His aim is to destroy your faith and your walk with Christ. His aim is to raise suspicions about the goodness of God. His aim is to make you vulnerable to the attacks that he is bringing into your life. He is a slanderer slash an accuser. 
who seeks to bring opposition into your life. And his aim is to destroy your walk with God. The last thing Peter tells us is this. He actively seeks our destruction. He actively seeks our destruction. And when I say our, I mean the faith of believers. Your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Let me just make a couple of observations here very, very quickly. The idea of prowling about, if you ever watch any of the Discovery Channel shows, uh, especially the ones about lions, tigers, how they pursue prey, how they stalk, how they, and use the word today that a lot of the kids use, how they creep, okay? Uh, he is, here's the idea, he is restless and energetic in his desire to take down and conquer. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to destroy. He energetically and restlessly can't wait to do harm and damage to what God is doing. You see, his aim is to steal glory from God. You go back to Isaiah 14, read the story of his fall and destruction. I will be like the Most High God. I will exalt myself. I will get the glory that God deserves. And anything that would be, bring glory to God in your life is what He will seek to oppose. So it's not hard to predict the areas in which the evil one will seek to attack you. It's important that you know that He continually, in a stealthy sort of way, seeks to detect weaknesses in our life so that He may exploit them and destroy us. Make no mistake about it. He is savvy, he is skilled, he is well thought out. He has had a lot of experience. Next thing that he says about him is this. He roars like a roaring lion. Purpose of the roar of a lion is simply this. To intimidate and freeze. To render inactive. Um, is Jessica in here? No, she's not. Okay. That's important. Okay. Um, my daughter Jessica is just a funny kid, fairly self-confident in many, many ways. If you ever scare her, all right, she does exactly what many Christians do when Satan seeks to, seeks to take them down, when he roars. If you ever scare my daughter in a situation, here's what she typically does. She just kind of melts right to the floor. If she's walking up the stairs in front of me and I just kind of, you know, like, Stomp on something. I mean, she just crumbles to the ground. Okay? Here's what Satan seeks to do in your life. Okay? When he roars his deceit, okay, his destructive ideas and tendencies, his desire is to cripple you, to take you down, so that you become vulnerable to a more aggressive attack and assault. His desire is to pull down and destroy. The word that's used here is he goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour literally means to swallow down and to destroy. Okay, folks, do you experience this in your life? You ever go through seasons in your life when you feel like you have become the special object of his attack, which is something I will address down the road? It's the daily Christian experience. Your experience of that is not unique. Talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, read the accounts of Christians in the Word of God. These attacks are part of the normal Christian experience. Know his resume. Okay, know that he is real, that he is your committed opponent, that he is a slanderer, and that he restlessly and actively goes about seeking to eliminate, to destroy, and to swallow down. 
In this effort, he is active, he is vigilant, and he is tireless. He is constantly looking for a weakness in your life. And he aims to destroy your testimony. What he wants you to do is to live a defeated Christian life. Because then he can go on to someone else. Because a defeated, weak Christian who is captive to sin and doubt and fear is of no concern to the evil one. Which is why I said at the beginning, I have a concern when our kids come home from an experience like camp. Because I know what they want. They want to live what they've been hearing. And I'm sure that for many of you, you leave here on Sunday morning saying, God, help me. But then Monday happens. And our commitment tends to evaporate or be assaulted by the daily experience of life and by the evil one who is skirting around the perimeter of your life experience looking for a weakness so he can roar and freeze you. And then he moves on. He wants to render you ineffective with fear and with doubt about the goodness of God. This morning, here's my response to that resume that Peter gives. It's simply something like this. Respect him, but do not fear him. Respect him, but don't fear him. I'll give you an illustration from my own personal experience. I have played with electricity, worked with electricity, okay? Uh, I fiddle with it. I'm not an electrician. I wired my house, but I had someone else figure out how it all works and ties together. Okay, I have occasionally gone in and tried to figure something out or tried to correct something that I thought was wrong. Okay, I can tell you this, and I, and I know this from hearing the stories. Electricity can kill you. In the right set of circumstances, electricity can kill you. You need to respect it. But I can tell you this also. I don't live in my electrified house in fear. Say to our teenagers, when you start driving your car, it is dead serious. You need to respect your car. You need to respect what can happen when you're out there. It is an incredibly dangerous thing to drive. But you don't need to live in fear. Okay? And I think what Satan has done in the church, he has caused many of the people to fear him rather than, from a biblical perspective, to respect what he is capable of, which is enormous damage in the body of Christ and in our Christian lives. We should respect him like we respect electricity, like we respect fire. We say don't play with fire, but fire you know, has, has purposes, and when you treat it properly, it's not going to hurt you. Okay, when you understand the attacks of the evil one, when you, when you understand his strategies, his purpose, look at his resume, get a clear picture of who he is, so that you know what he is seeking to do in your life, so that you can do what Peter's going to say next, and that is, take your stand against him. Don't live in intimidation. Don't live in defeat constantly. Don't live feeling like a prisoner to his plans and purposes. God has so much more for you. And so what I would beg of you this morning is this. Respect Him. Do not be afraid of Him. Alright? Take your stand. Our response to Him as He comes seeking to devour is what I'd like to focus on next from this text. How do we prepare on a regular basis for the assaults that come perpetually and consistently from our opponent? 
from our adversary, the devil, who seeks to slander and destroy us. How do we prepare? I think Peter covers these thoughts in the verses that precede and follow verse 8. Okay, I want you to look, first of all, at verses 5 and 6. He says, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares upon Him, because He cares for you. I think the first thing that we need to do, if we are going to experience victory over the attacks, the persistent attacks of the evil one, is this. We need to humble ourselves before God on a daily basis. Okay, now, you say, Tim, what do you mean by humility? Okay, let me just give you this simple definition. Humility is the daily glad acknowledgement of my profound weakness. Okay, humility is the daily and glad acknowledgement of my profound, obvious weaknesses. Because if I acknowledge before God on a regular basis my inadequacy to face the opponent that I deal with every day, okay, if I acknowledge that I am weak, what does the Bible say? That's when I am strong. So at first, I understand this. It sounds strange to say that if you want to go out into a battle, the first thing you need to do is humble yourself. It doesn't make sense. That's why most of us tend to try to do it in our flesh. We try to steal our courage, make it strong, and go out there and defeat him. You know what God says? The first thing that we should do on a daily basis is fall on our knees before God and say, God, I can't do this. I try by God's grace. I'll just take today as an illustration on Sunday mornings to wake up and say, God, I can't do this. And I can tell you this as your pastor, Satan persistently, at the time that my alarm goes off on Sunday mornings, has typically preceded my alarm and sought to flood my mind with doubts about inadequacy and ineffectiveness. He wants to render you ineffective. He wants to cover your life with a blanket of fear. Here's what God says when that happens. Humble yourself before me. Gladly acknowledge that you are unable to deal with the assault, with the offensive that is coming against you. And I think this text is also encouraging something very strong. When he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, humility is a duty that invites the power, protection, and grace of God into your life. Folks, this is a powerful truth to understand in the context of spiritual warfare. Humility invites the power and presence of God into your life. Would you look at verse 6? Notice how he says it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up. Drop back up to verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards each other, with a glad acknowledgement of your weaknesses, because God opposes the proud, but he gives perpetually and consistently support to the humble. When I am proud, I am vulnerable. And I think Satan knows when we're living a proud life. And he seeks to hunt us down and devour us. Pride is our greatest enemy, one has said. Humility is our greatest friend. My pride invites the opposition of God and distance from Him. Humility is the means by which we resist Satan. We don't have to say to Satan, Satan, I can conquer you, I can deal with you. What we can say is, I can't, but I know someone who has already dealt to you a death blow through His death on the cross. 
who has demonstrated his victorious power over you through his resurrection from the dead. Therefore, I respect what you're capable of doing, but I am not afraid. Okay, that is not the cry of a proud heart. That is not the cry of a self-reliant individual. That is the cry of someone who has come under the mighty power of God and who knows that between ourselves and God, all things are possible. And we are sustained and strengthened by Him. The very simple thought in this text is God helps the humble in their fight against the evil one. And what I love is this. Verse 5, he says uh, that, that... It says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand that he may lift you up. And this is fascinating to me. In due time. At the right time. He will show up and sustain you. And what happens in our lives? What happens is we go through circumstances that cause us to doubt the goodness and grace of God, don't we? You know what God says? God says, I am going to come to your aid and assist you and strengthen you in the battle at the right time. Okay, meaning at the time that is appropriate to provide for you the lesson you need to learn through the struggle and success that will cause you to look to God and say, God, I didn't do that. I did not do that. He allows us at times to go through difficulties and to come out of them ultimately victorious, even though they are painful. So that in the end, we can look back to him and say, God, I didn't do that. That was your power residing and working and living through me. He aims in this battle to glorify himself in the lives of humble people. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, under the attack of a messenger from the evil one, could say, I will glory in my infirmities so that the power of God may rest upon me so that what is occurring in my life, my usefulness to the kingdom of God, is not emerging from giftedness. It is emerging from brokenness and weakness in the context of a life that is filled for the glory of God by the power of God. He aims to glorify himself in the lives of humble people. I think the test that we need to ask, or the test question we need to submit to ourselves is this. Am I walking in a, a generous sense of humility? Do I know Do I realize that I can't live this life today for the glory of God in my own strength and as a result fall on my face before God with a glad acknowledgement of my profound weaknesses knowing that when I come to Him like that He gives grace, He sustains, He supports, He strengthens the one who falls before Him. It's a strange thing. It's a paradox that when I am weak, then I am strong. As you prepare to face the opposition of the evil one. Humble yourself before God. Secondly, do this. Verse 7. Cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. When you experience the attack of the evil one, here's what you need to do. You need to rest in God's care. You need to draw back and say, God, I am going to rest in you. I am going to trust you to support me in this circumstance. To be the man, young person, or woman that you desire for me to be. To rest in God's care means simply this. It means trust Him in every circumstance that you face. In every assault from the evil one, say to God, I am utterly dependent upon you and I completely trust you. Which is difficult for some of us at times, isn't it? 
Because there are times that we face circumstances in our life that we don't understand the purpose of. And I could go through in Scripture many examples of people who experienced circumstances to that, that to them were inexplicable, but God, that God ultimately used for His glory. And what God wants us to do in those circumstances, those drawn-out circumstances in your life that many in this room are facing today, He wants you to rest in His care. As the evil one comes, He's saying this, take that burden that you have, that concern, that fear that is overwhelming, that is giving resistance in your life, Give that over to God. And the word simply means something like this. It, it, it's a word that was used, this idea of casting your care, placing it upon, taking blankets and placing them upon a beast of burden. You're no longer holding them. You have put them onto uh, the support of another. And what God wants us to do in this text, I think is very, very powerful. He wants to take all of your anxieties and to actively, not partially, but totally, take that problem and roll it over to God. Here's my experience. I know what it is to say, God, I'm giving this to you. But there is a difference between, between me saying, God, I am giving this to you, and me actually giving it over to God. Here's what I find. I need to consistently and regularly take the burden and give it to God. And give it to God. And give it to God. Okay? That what that requires is this. Okay? That requires a deep and profound trust in the love of God for you. He wants you to take the sum total of all your cares that are emerging from your circumstances in life. And he wants you to cast them over to him. You know what Satan wants to do? He wants to heap trouble upon your life. To give you a sense of being burdened so that you become unhappy and ineffective. And I, I'm sure that many of you sitting in this room can say, oh yeah, I know what that's like. It is no surprise to me that Peter would tie a promise about God's care to the command to take your stand against the evil one. Because the evil one who prowls, his aim is to bring into your life a feeling of disgust with yourself. A feeling of ineffectiveness. A feeling that nobody else has it as bad as I have it. That's what he aims to cause you to think. So that he can render you a person who doubts the power of God and no longer rests in it. In this case... Peter gives strong advice. Take your burdens, cast them upon God, and here's the reason. Because He cares for you. 1 John 4, 4 is a verse that has often comforted my heart. It says, you belong to God, little children, and have overcome them. You belong to God. He is your Father, and therefore you have overcome them, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. You should cast your cares upon Him, because He is your Heavenly Father. He is the one who has chosen you and who loves you and wants a permanent and deep relationship of support with you. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, I will not leave you, but I will come to you and sustain you through the presence of my spirit. One writer has said this, it is the belief that God cares that marks Christianity off from all world religions. And listen to what that says. It is the belief that God cares that sets biblical Christianity apart from all other world religions, which in various ways are occupied with the task of making God care. Do you understand the difference? All religions encourage you to cause God to care about you by your good works. Okay, that's what religion is all about. You do this, God will give you this response of love. You know what the Bible says? God showed His love to us, Romans 5.8, in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for you. As folks, here's the bottom line. If in your utter rebellion God loved you, will he not be more inclined to love you as his child? When we experience anxieties and concerns, you know what we tend to do? We tend to doubt the goodness of God. You know what Peter is saying? Don't doubt the goodness of God. Give that burden to him. And the sign of biblical Christianity, the distinguishing mark, is that it doesn't seek to awaken God to care about them by personal sacrifice. Because that's what religion demands, doesn't it? If I want God to care about me, I have to do things for Him that will cause Him to move towards me with affection. No, when you were still a rebel, He moved towards you with affection and personal sacrifice in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, why wouldn't you give your cares and concerns to a God like that? Why wouldn't you take the burdens of your life, your fears for your children, for your marriage, for your job, for your financial circumstances, why wouldn't you give it to him instead of letting Satan take pot shots at the targets that are taped all over your life? Take those targets and give them to God. Say, this is not my problem. I'm your child. And I trust you. Don't think that you can make God care about you because if you do, you will tie and bind upon yourself a burden to live successfully so that you can then experience the power and presence and love of God. You already have it. Satan seeks to cause you to not think that it's there. And we end up living lives that are often defeated. Satan's aim, I believe, in all of his accusations is to cause you to question the love and kindness of God. You know what God says? If you have concerns like that, give them to me. Because I am committed to caring for you as my child. So as we face the opposition, we need to ask, have I humbled myself before God? Secondly, am I resting in God's care? Ask yourself this question. What burden and circumstance is resting on your shoulders today that is making you vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one and causing you to doubt the goodness of God? Okay, what circumstance is making you vulnerable to the accuser of the brothers. Psalm 55 and verse 22, a verse you might want to memorize. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to perish. You know what Satan whispers in your ear? You're going to perish. You're a loser. You're disgusting spiritually. Your sin is an offense to God. He will no longer love you. That's what he wants you to think that you've made mistakes that you can't overcome, that you've permanently scarred your life and you will live a defeated, destroyed Christian life. You know what God wants you to do? God wants you to take that massive burden of guilt, that massive fear. He wants you to roll it over to Him and not allow the evil one to play in the heart of His child. And I commend you to this. He loves you. He cares for you. Here's the proof. He cared for you before you moved towards Him. So don't think that, oh, I've got to get my life together and then God will begin to empower me. No, you need to get your life undone. Humbling yourself. And then he'll help you. He doesn't want you with your act together. He doesn't need your act together. He wants to, aim, he wants to help you where you are because his aim is not to glorify you. It is to glorify his name by demonstrating his power through your life. And many of us live in defeat. I talk with many of you. I know you live with a serious degree of defeat in your life. God does not aim for that to be in your life as His child. He wants you to take that concern and roll it over. Look, 
He is so incredibly capable and caring. Why would you carry the burden when you can just take it and just, just simply give it over to Him, place it upon Him? He will sustain you as the promise. He will never allow the righteous to perish. And the last thing I would challenge you with this morning is this. Prepare to face your adversary in the power of God. And this is where verse 8 and following go. Be self-controlled and alert, which simply means this. It means to live aware that when you get out of your bed and put your foot on the floor and begin to experience a degree of consciousness, which I realize for some of us it kind of awakens over time, as you begin to experience a degree of consciousness and say, I, I'm going to go and live this day for God, you have an opponent. And what Peter says, and this comes out of his experience, is be self-controlled and alert. Take control of your emotions and get your heart appropriately oriented towards God. How do I do that? A couple simple thoughts. Be aware of your opponent. Okay, just simple like it. When you get up in the morning, would you take time to acknowledge before God, today, God, I am not going to live an unopposed life. Be alert, be aware. Isn't this exactly where Peter failed in the garden in Matthew 26? Jesus said to them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Why did Jesus say that to Peter? Because Peter and James and John did not live unopposed lives. And Jesus was preparing them. He's saying, guys, please stay alert. And I just beg of you as, our, as, as, as the chapel at Warren Valley, as this church, stay alert. Be aware that you have an opponent who is out there who wants to destroy your joy in God and render you ineffective. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Why? Because the temptations are going to be there. The opposition is part of effective Christian living. Okay, we live in a fallen world, and all of us, there is no one here whose situation is unique in terms of facing opposition. Anticipate the struggle. Don't stress over it. Don't be caused to fear by it. Respect it. Don't play at the Christian life. Be fervent and serious about your Christian experience with God. Secondly, actively resist the opposition of the evil one, but do it not in your own strength, but in the power of God. Okay, it's why Peter says here, he says, resist him, verse 9, standing firm in the faith. Okay, standing firm in what Jesus Christ did for you. The faith can be summarized in this. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. And all of those things in an, in an unbelievable way distinguish biblical Christianity, the biblical Christianity from all world religions and demonstrate the incredible power of God that is at the disposal of everyone who believes and trusts in him. There is no reason to live a defeated Christian life. Actively resist him. Take your stand. Stand firm. James 4 and verse 7, I think, is just such a powerful passage of Scripture in this context. Listen to what it says. It says, submit yourselves then to God. Humble yourself. Resist the devil in the power of God because you've humbled yourself. And what will he do? He will, folks, listen to this, please. He will flee from you. He is formidable, he is powerful, and he is defeatable. When you claim the name of Christ and the blood of Christ and the power of Christ in your life, he cannot take it. So when you face opposition, 
Take your stand. Actively resist him in the power of God. And I love what James then says next. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will, he will flee from you. Come near to God. And what will he do? He will draw near to you. Humility precedes the proximity of God in your life. His proximity is closer as you are more humble. And when you more, are more humble, you are more able to resist the work of the evil one because you are resting in the power of God. Resist him, God says. He'll flee from you. In other words, when he throws those darts of doubt, you can extinguish them with the shield of faith. As you draw near to God, his promise is, I will come to you. Actively, therefore, resist. Because the evil one has already received the death blow from the evil or, or, or from God through the work of Jesus Christ. Can I read for you Romans or Revelation 12, verse 11? It says, For the accuser of the brothers, that is the word devil, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so as much as to shrink from death. Folks, you know what Revelation is doing? The book of Revelation is talking about the feet of the evil one as if it is already done. His death warrant is already signed. Ours is to live the victory that Christ has, has given to us in him. He is already a defeated enemy. He is just simply rattling his saber. Failure and relapse in your life is not inevitable and victory is possible. Now, what's one other thing that Satan wants you to think in your circumstances? Here's what I believe he wants you to think. I believe he wants you to think that your circumstances, your attack, your struggle, your marital situation, your fear about finances, your longing for a mate, your longing for close friends, all of your situation is unique. That's what the evil one wants you to think. And by doing that, he aims to isolate you from your brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, Tim, where do you get that in the text? Look at verse 9 of 1 Peter 5. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. You know what Satan wants you to think? Your struggle is absolutely and utterly unique. Your sinful pattern is unique and undefeatable. You can't escape it. Now here's what I'll say to you this morning. In your own strength, you cannot defeat him. But if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will give you the strength that you need to live a life that is utterly and profoundly and God-glorifyingly victorious in Jesus. You know that your brothers are experiencing the same thing. That simple thought then in your notes is this. Remember that your struggle is normal, not unique. It is normal, not unique. And then the last thought that I would give you from verse 10 and 11 is this. Let's just read verses 10 and 11. It says, as you do this, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And I love how Peter ends. He says to him, be the, 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 the power forever and the glory. Amen. Trust and rest in God for success in your offensive against the evil one. The God of unmerited favor, of undeserved loyalty and support will come and strengthen you. 
because his grace in Jesus Christ is enough. Now, you may be here this morning as someone who is a seeker. And you're wondering what this opposition is that you've been facing. This pressure to keep you from knowing God through circumstances, through individuals, through whatever it may be in your own heart, fears, doubts, all those sorts of things. What I'm going to tell you is this. Okay? I think the evil one wants to keep you isolated from Christians. He doesn't want you to see the power of God in their lives. But you know what God has done? God has brought you to this place where, Lord willing, you can encounter some people that know Christ, who aren't perfect, who are desperately dependent upon the grace of God. And you may look at their lives and say, you know what, there's something different about these people. I'm here to tell you this morning what it is. They know Christ. They're not perfect people. They're not sinless people. They're people that are resting in the power of God and have begun to experience in their lives, in, in, in varying degrees and ways, change that is evidencing the power of God, that is allowing them to, <clears throat> after suffering a little while, be restored by God, made strong by God, stand firm and steadfast. And their life, hopefully, as you observe it, is pointing to the power of God and is saying to you, your life could be different. If that's your story this morning, you say, you know what, I am a seeker. I have been looking and watching, but I don't know Christ. Christ defeated the evil one on the cross. He shed his blood to give you the hope of eternal life. And he wants to and aims to change your life forever. If you're here this morning as a Christian, you say, Pastor Tim, I know this struggle with the evil one. I know what it is to have an adversary. I know what it is for, it is for him to pressure me and to cause extreme levels of doubt and fear and intimidation. And many times I feel frozen. My response to you this morning is this. Resisting him is a cooperative effort. It requires that you cooperate with God by humbling yourself under his mighty hand. It requires that you go to God and say, God, I have been trying to do this in my flesh, and I, I yield to you. I take the burden, I place it upon you. I want to stand in your power. I humble myself before you, gladly this morning acknowledging that I am not sufficient for these things. Would you please, by your grace, fulfill your promise to draw near to those that draw near to you? Maybe you need to go to God this morning and say, God, I have been living a life of defeat. Enslaved in patterns of sin, enslaved in struggles in my marriage relationship, enslaved in fear about my kid, whatever it is. God wants you to come to him and cast your cares upon him so that you will know that he cares for you. So that you will know what it is to be sustained by his grace and the struggle that you are facing in your life. You are not alone if you know Christ. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. His promise is very simple. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he will come closer as you draw near to him in a glad humility that says, God, I can't do this, but I know you can. I want to rest in you, be filled by you, and strengthened by your power and love. Will you, as you go from this place today, commit to preparing daily for the battle that is the Christian life? Because what our children faced as they came home from camp this week and as they come home from camp next week is going to be normal living, isn't it? They're going to go back into a sinful world where there's fallenness and struggles. And the question is, can they succeed? And the answer is yes. If they rest in the power of God to resist the assault of our enemy, the devil. God is able. May he help us to rest in him. Father, 
This morning, we thank you so much for your word. 